Step one, go into Odessa. Step two, attack the town hall and take people hostage. Step three, question mark. Step four, congratulations. You now control a town of, you know, a million people. It's just bizarre. It's like, that's not how this works at all, right? So it's when you have that level of planning and competence and a toxic system where the officers refuse or don't like to engage in back and forth dialogue with, you know, their enlisted forces or people who have more combat experience, then the whole house of card rots and collapses. Hopefully that answered the question. And there was one earlier, I think I was muted about why are Russian comms so bad. They've been bad. They've been terrible for a long time. There's a lot of factors in it. Their radio discipline sucks. They can literally be on the same line with each other and just they'll just talk over each other for five minutes. Um, they've gotten a lot better than they were early war, but they're just a lot of radio discipline is just gross incompetency on their side. Yeah, language is 100% right there. So bad uh, radio discipline and also um, unencrypted uh, radios as well. Donnie? Yeah, I just wanted to like add to the, the idea of brain drain. The, you know, the moment uh, someone, you know, that doesn't have much is educated in Russia. And then, you know, the mo- he, he tries to get work outside of Russia and then takes his family. So you have, you have, you know, the... Cl- the vast majority of people that stay in Russia aren't educated. You know, uh, I think 70% of their labor force is construction, you know, so the, so, you know, when, when we talk about brain drain, we talk about logistics faults or we talk about their lack of comms, it's because, you know, they're lured by the West and, you know, and so on top of, so not only do like you, you literally don't have the brain power inside of Russia to accomplish these things anymore. So that's that's another guiding factor. Thank you, Donnie. Dominic? Yeah, and there's, I suppose there's, they're, they're in a bit of a shit sandwich, really, there, because, I mean, when you get to the higher level, um, they're all getting killed. I mean, if you look at, I don't know if you've seen the one, uh, I think it's some infographic, and it's kind of um, looking at Russian generals over the past 20 years, basically, and how they've died. And during the 2014, so that would have been the invasion of Donbass, etc. Um, you know, you've got suicide, suicide, shot himself. Um, somebody shot himself, but he had cancer, so maybe that's fair enough. Shot himself again, jumped out of a window, shot himself, shot himself, hanged himself. And then uh, just in the 2015, a heart attack. So... Probably haven't got that much to look forward to, have they, really, at the end of the day? I mean, it's kind of horrible to laugh at, really, but... Uh, yeah. such, is life help, in, it. such is life in Putin's Russia. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I've got a question or a clarification from a listener, because uh, my math was... I was doing my math wrong in terms of officer deaths. That, you know, it'd probably be more worthwhile, rather than using arbitrary numbers, how many officers are in each individual battalion tactical group, let's call it an average number of 100, just a big round number, versus how many have been killed, because then we can actually see the attrition rate of the Russian officer corps. So that, that's a great question. I don't have the answer for that yet. I'm trying to pull up the math. If anybody can get me information on how, what's the general officer composition of a Russian battalion tactical group, I would love to see it, because just with cursory knowledge, I'm not getting that information, and I would be very interested in how that uh, applies compared to, say, you know, a NATO battalion. 
Um, so if somebody can get me that, just in general figures like, oh, well, there'll be one major commanding X, you know, whatever. Uh, that would be helpful just so we can start to see, like, okay, how many of these battalion tax groups have been degraded? I'm sending you that information language now. Donnie, okay. please go ahead. Yeah, um, um, I was just looking at uh, remittance receipts numbers, and it's weird. I was I was expecting to see Russia at the, at the top or, or you know up up in the top ten, but you know it seems that India is uh, number one, then China, Mexico, Philippines. Um, I'm asking. I'm going to ask with M. Is is it because we they, we probably don't have the data from Russia, or like what's your feeling on these stats like it's from the wef i'm looking at the website now are we talking about foreign currency going into uh russia yeah, like, repatriated by by expats sending money back yeah you know like uh, in canada we have uh like a filipino uh, a vast amount of uh, uh filipino great um uh, uh, you know, a uh, great addition to, to yeah, I people. understand without, without yeah. referencing any, any nationalities. It was just yeah. like foreign workers working in a different country and sending money back home. Yes. Right. So what are you looking at? I, I just, I was expecting to see Russia uh, on like the top 10 list and it's not. And I'm wondering if it's due to lack of information or, or is like, it's, it's just odd to me. No, it wouldn't be due to lack of information because every single central bank in the world uh, communicates with other central banks and there's the International Bank of Settlements as well. And uh, repatriations are uh, considered one of the huge or is always in one of the top five sources for a government to get foreign currency by its uh, its citizens uh, sending money back home. India, for instance, Egypt as well. So if it's not if Russians aren't in, in the top list uh, in the top ten list, then they are not. Then the Russian citizens aren't sending money back home, as much as other citizens of other nations. I'm wondering if it's like you know, this is just a guess. Like when they leave, they leave with their like their entire family and never look back, or is it just that you know it's just. It just is what it is. I don't. I, just send me send me a link uh, to sure. what, whatever you're looking at. I'll let you know. I'm curious. Please go ahead. Yeah, actually, actually that that last bit about the um, remittances to family members is is kind of getting close to what I would want to say is is the mechanic going on there. Because um, I mean, most remittances are from sort of people who go who go sort of do seasonal labor or stuff like that in another country, right? And then sort of send it back over, but the the sort of outward flows from Russia are all like largely people professional enough to like move their entire family and everything. Uh, so they're not, I guess anyone who is in the same kind of demographic that would be sending remittances isn't in the demographic that would be, that as a Russian would permit them from leaving Russia basically is is the kind of take I would have on that one. Ah, yes. Remittance. That's the word I was looking for. I always forget it. Thank you, Imperius. You're welcome. Sorry for derailing the uh, military suite. <laughs> you can go back to the language. Language, do you have any more updates that you would like to add? Um, sure, let's, let's try and bring some up here. Um, 
Oh, you know, just one. It's not military, but it should serve as a good counter propaganda tool. There's been a lot of talk about, oh, Zelensky's a despot, he's a dictator. Oh, my God. Well, the man actually vetoed, essentially, a bill sent by the um, parliament that was going to allow for the confiscation of Russian assets from uh, people or companies directly. And he said, hey, this law does not establish clear criteria by which a person can be classified as one of the folks subject to such a sanction. This does not meet the requirements of the Constitution of Ukraine, which, I mean, shows a couple of things. A, where Ukraine is now financially, economically, politically, that they can afford to, you know, stick to their ideals. And B, you know, the kind of man he is. So just, it's nice and interesting. Um to try to get more information on what the hell happened in uh, Kramatorsk because something massive exploded there and the information beyond that is unclear. It looks like there was another explosion later on. In more good news, though, uh, the UN Secretary General reported that uh, nearly 500 more civilians, so in addition, had been activated from Mariupol in the vicinity of the Azovstal plant. It's unclear how many of those came from Azovstal, how many of those are simply civilians still living in Mariupol. There's still the better part of 100,000 people there. But, um, yeah, the, any more people able to get out of that hellhole is good. Um, the main force of Russian troops, this is from Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby, the main force of Russian troops that was at Russian, uh, that were in Mariupol have now withdrawn north of the city. A very a basic, they're saying, oh, Jesus, only approximately a pair of battalion tactical groups are concentrated in the city. That's a lot less than I expected. I was expecting them to keep three or four, but if they really only have, let's call it um, 2,000 people there, that's a very minor amount. Um, I wonder what that will mean for the offensives on uh, Azovstal, because if you're throwing people down into those tunnels, you're going to lose a lot of them very quickly. Um, beyond that, there's been artillery fire on Krivi Ri in the Dnipro region, um, hitting a couple villages. And uh, there's been no casualties, thankfully. Otherwise, uh, there continues to be shelling near Liman in Papazna. There's Ukraine. Uh, Russians are still uh, trying to establish full control. Um, they're still blockading Mariupol, um, and they've resumed assault operations on the plant in Severodonetsk. Um, between the last time when we talked about that uh, large assault, there hasn't really been any major ones. Um, looks like the Russians were really banking on that large armored assault to cut the link between Rubizna and Severodonetsk. That failed, and as a result, they've had to pull back. Um, hmm. Intriguing. In the uh, southern region around Hersan, uh and to the east of Hersan, they the Russians not conduct active hostilities entrenched, but set up more air defense systems and more electronic warfare systems. So that's intriguing. We don't hear a lot about Russian electronic warfare systems until they get blown up or captured these days. So anything more about that is interesting. And then a corner reports, uh, Russia's Russian casualties have essentially flooded into the hospital in Kupyansk, which is a large, uh, which is an urban area along the main Russian supply routes into Izium and the North Donbass. And there's about 300 Russian casualties there. Um, and then, oh, Okay. Yeah. Uh, so finally, an update on it was 15 Russian uh, air targets were hit, uh, 14 drones, so 11 of which 
were shot down in the Donbass. I imagine the other three from other locations. And one Su-30 fighter jet were shot down. I don't know what the Su-30 is versus an Su-27. I'm sure somebody here can inform me on it. But the more of those I get down, the better. Otherwise, it's about the bulk of general updates is what happened in the last couple hours. Um, yeah. And if anybody has more information on what happened in Kramatorsk, I'd love to hear it. I know there was one that uh, thankfully only injured 25 people, but it was said that 810 apartments and 32 uh, high-rise buildings were damaged by a pretty massive explosion, uh, but they were evacuated ahead of time, and so no one was killed. And beyond that, six houses, two schools, a kindergarten, a hospital, and a couple businesses were destroyed um, or damaged. So if anybody has more information on exactly where that strike hits, there's a couple pictures of it floating around or what the hell happened with those large explosions last night in Kramatorsk. I'd be interested in getting a sense on what the Russians are trying to do there. Thank you, language. Uh, so, Donnie, I looked at what you sent. So the, the whole concept of remittance is uh, usually one, or, one, of, one of two things. The first one is that you have family behind, and therefore you're, you leave your country, you seek a better job opportunity, you get paid in foreign currency, and you send it back home, and the foreign exchange rate is usually uh, a factor here that provides for the family that you're sending uh, money back to. Also, it reflects a measure of confidence in the banking system of your uh, home country that you're sending back uh, your money to, as well as the availability of, of investment uh, opportunities. So, for instance, I, I will comment on uh, what I know the most which is uh, which is Egypt. In Egypt's case, I think we come, according to this statistic, one, two, three, four, five, we're number five. We're the fifth uh, top uh, remittance recipient. And that's because the Egyptian government provides a lot of uh, investment bonds with high interest uh, rates that go up to 18%. There's currently... Uh, an investment vehicle in which you can invest your money in Egyptian currency and get an 18% annual uh, ROI, also investment in real estate. So judging by this, I would say that the Russians who leave, I, probably they have family back, right? But I don't know if they are sending them as, as much. And also, it would you will have to consider a lot more data points here. So for instance... What, what kind of jobs Russians who actually leave Russia for good get in other countries? What kind of qualifications do they have for those jobs? How well are those jobs paying? And then you start thinking about whether they have family back home or not, whether they trust their own banking system or not, whether they trust keeping their money in Russia or not. So it's 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 a complex uh, – it's a very complex question. It's a very good question, but um, – it, it requires a lot more data points to look to to come up even with a model or an idea for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking it was yeah once again uh, uh, interesting because we um, like we send our family in Bulgaria every month, you know, money. So um, yeah, it, it just thought I thought that you know maybe it would um, you know um, bring add to the picture of what's happening inside of Russia and what's leading to uh, all this. Well, this specific statistic won't because it's two years old, right? So yeah, but but you get the point. It's a very it's a 
it's an interesting topic, but without more uh, data points to examine and then trying to formulate a model to come up with an understanding, it's it's a bit very expensive, but interesting yeah. none, nonetheless. Thank you. Cool. Imperious. Thank you. Sorry, Donnie, go ahead. No, I just said thank you. Thank you, Donnie. You're welcome. Imperious. Uh, yeah, I had a small minor sort of tangentially military-related update. Uh, one of the... Uh, crew of the mosques was father uh, apparently he raised a a lot of stink uh about not getting any information from the russian military about his son and apparently uh bellingcat is reporting that he has just gotten a letter from the from a russian military prosecutor saying that his son did not turn up for for uh oh failed to report for duty after extraordinary circumstances brought the demise of the ship not involved in the special military operation, quote, unquote. So yet another example of the Russian government breaking the uh, upper bounds of cynicism. Yep. They're quite known for that. Uh, Ifim, please go ahead. All right, everyone, we have a couple of free speaker slots. If you would like to ask a question or bring up a topic for discussion, feel free to send us a speaker request, and we will gladly answer your questions and discuss your topic to the extent of our knowledge. The Walter Report space is a space being run 24-7 to bring you updates on what's happening on the ground in Ukraine, uh, share with you uh, the experiences and the stories of Ukrainian voices from the ground in Ukraine. The Walter Report Space is gladly and happily and proudly supporting the Maria Aid organization. Maria Aid is a not-for-profit organization set up in Canada by former and current Canadian armed forces who participated in Operation Unifier, which was the NATO training mission in Ukraine, training Ukrainian officers and NCOs. It is also uh, associated with uh, several civilian volunteers. 100% of what you contribute goes towards supplying a wish list provided by the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian armed forces, mainly non-lethal aid, medical supplies, drones, bulletproof vests, and other stuff. You can help by spreading the word. You can help by checking out mariaaid.org. Also find Maria Aid on Instagram to see uh, the results of your contributions. And uh, Maya, please go ahead. Hello, I'm from Poland and I have a question. If it's really possible to to help any anyhow uh, to troops in Azovstal, I, I work a little with, yeah, as a volunteer on, uh, with uh, refugees and I met some uh, some combat guy who who is on recovery in Poland. He was in seriously injured, and he said that there is a plan to send there any ammo and and help them. And my wonder is if it's just like good news to to cherish people, or it's true that it is possible. It is possible to help them any anyhow. Thank you. Well, that's a question for language. It's a very tough question. Um, I don't, I mean, honestly, usually I'd tell you, no, those guys are dead um, already. They're just walking around. Uh, but now that I'm hearing that there's only two battalions left in that city, I 
you know, maybe I can allow myself just the faintest glimmer of hope and say yeah, they can hold out for a little bit longer than I thought they'd be able to. Um, the real limiting factor is not going to be bullets. It's going to be food and it's going to be uh, medical supplies. Um, this is going to be very dark and very cruel and very harsh. But uh, with the loss, they're probably not going to have to worry about as many medical supplies because with the damage and the destruction of the uh, main hospital section under there, a lot of those people are just going to die and um, they're not going to need to use medical supplies on them anymore. Uh, so that those are going to be the right limiting steps. There are a number of water purification systems there. I have no idea how much ammo is there. I know that they have food storage, but the biggest thing is going to be how much uh, food, how much ammo they have, and if the Russians uh, decide to use less conventional tactics, i.e., you know, throwing smoke grenades or gassing them out. Um, but uh, getting stuff to them at this point, all that has, you know, survival is a form of victory, but getting stuff to them is going to be nigh impossible at this point. Um, there's really no effective way to do so. If they're able to sufficiently degrade the Russian forces in, as in Mariupol, um, and then maybe something can be done. I hope that they will, uh, they should be able to hold out a lot longer now that I'm hearing that there's only two battalions of them there. Uh, than I had originally thought when there was, you know, five to seven. But getting stuff there at this point is essentially impossible, unfortunately. So you think that it's like they are sentenced to, to death or just be captured? It's it's hard stuff. Okay. It, it's hard stuff. Not every story has a happy ending. I'd hope that, I mean, I mean, the longer they survive, the greater likelihood of Ukrainian forces being able to relieve them is. But at this point, they are rather far behind Ukrainian, behind Russian lines. And, uh, you know, there's several hundred people down there um, who are still capable of fighting and whatnot. Uh, but it's it's a very poor circumstance. And the Russians have no intention on letting them uh, get out of their life. Uh, there's not going, you know, these humanitarian quarters, the Russians have zero desire to let any R Ukrainian forces get out of their life because... Every single one of those people that gets back to Ukraine territory and can get in front of a camera and say, not only did we fight for 70-plus days, but we survived. If we can do it, you can do it. Huge morale boost for Ukraine. And Russia doesn't want to see that. Um, plus, they have their own internal propaganda about Azov and whatnot that they want to commit to. So the situation is bad, um, unfortunately. But uh, I, I don't see any relief coming anytime soon for the soldiers. For the civilians, it's good to see that there is increased amounts of humanitarian quarters uh, that are actually being attended to. But for the soldiers themselves, uh, it's, you know, they're, they're trading uh, money. Okay, thank you. Time. Sorry. Yep. Thank you. But there, was also my, uh, there was also one report of a daring mission in which five, Ukrainian helicopters managed to reach uh, Mariupol, I think, language, right? Yes. So it, there is that that was several weeks ago. Um, before they were forced back to Azovstal, uh, there was five Ukrainian helicopters that were able to fly into the city. This was actually shortly uh, after the uh, attack on Belgorod by Ukrainian helicopters. Um, I think that there was a little bit of confusion on the Russian side because they said, hey, there's no reason for the Ukrainians to be here. And those helicopters look like ours. And uh, they were able to evacuate some wounded. They were able to resupply with some equipment. I want to say this was middle of April, thereabouts. And uh, unfortunately, one of the helicopters was shot down, but the other four were able to get out. So 
the capability exists, but right now, I mean, these guys are literally in a fortress. Um, there could possibly be tunnels that we're not aware of. I hope there's tunnels we're not aware of. But um, I think the ability to resupply them is going to be very, very challenging and in a very cruel and dark way. If there's, you know, the amount of resources it would take to launch an operation, to punch all the way through Russian lines, get there, hold the area for the days it would take to evacuate the wounded, pull back all while securing your supply lines would be a large number of forces that are currently tied up in the Donbass. Um, so... It's, it's a bad situation, and I think I've depressed everybody enough on it. There was, however, an announcement by the UK government a couple of days ago that they would provide Ukraine with heavy transport uh, drones, quote-unquote. This is a long shot. I don't know uh, which uh, drone systems are being supplied, and I don't know if there's it a capability. Do 70 kilograms, to, as I understand yeah. And I don't know if there's a capability for a forward team to operate those drones and fly them into Mariupol and straight to the Azovstal factory where most of the forces are holed up right now to provide them with uh, any supplies whatsoever that they could use to continue fighting. So this is speculation on my part, 100%. It comes on... The fact that the UK, UK government announced providing Ukraine with heavy transport drones. So maybe that would happen. I don't know. I would be very happy if it does. But that's one possibility. But it's just speculation at this point if those drones could be operated uh, uh, from a point close enough for them to be flown safely into uh, Ukrainian positions and really supply them with whatever supplies they need to continue the fight. So, Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of inventive solutions, and I hope they get used. Frankly, I hope we don't hear about any of them until we see these folks back safe and sound. Um, they're in a very defensible position, is the good news. Um, the bad news is the resources are running low. We have no idea exactly which ones will run out first. Um, we, had, uh, we actually have a gentleman here, uh, Axel, who has been in Azovstal and was able to share some information with us regarding the uh, water purification systems. I mean, this place was set up to survive a nuclear war back in the 60s and 70s, right? So water purification, food storage. Um, I think the rate-limiting step really is going to be medical supplies, but it's a very, very, very challenging place to try and fight in and even more challenging for untrained or unspecialized Russian troops to try and go fight it as Colonel Spencer was talking about us. So uh, it's, it's, it's a poor situation, but, you know, the Ukrainians are frankly in probably one of the best uh, defensible areas uh, in this war that exists. So, you know, it's survival is victory at this point. Um, as far as those drones, though, as I understand, at least from the stuff that was released, they, could, they were sort of designed to be used for carrying small torpedoes that could be utilized against some of the Russian submarines. Uh, on the western side of the Black Sea, which would be hysterical to watch. Frankly, I'd, I'd love to see a country without a navy destroy not only a flagship, but also submarines. Um, but they could also very well be used for supplying emergency supplies and other equipment to uh, the defenders of Azovstal. Um, and frankly, I, I may, I hope that I have to eat my words. Uh, I'd love to eat crow on this one, um, especially now that we're hearing that they've pulled out a considerable number of forces from the area around Mariupol. There's only 2,000, you know, soldiers, and not all of those guys are people pulling triggers. There's logistics and officers and communications and yada, yada, yada. Then 
at, it may not be nearly as long for the people in Azovstal to uh, degrade the Russian forces attacking them until the Russian forces no longer can attack them. And then it just becomes a siege. But the siege is preferable to having to be sieged and also fight every single day. So maybe I'll allow myself just the faintest glimmer of hope on that one. You know, ended on a semi-positive note. Okay, thank you for the answer. I I know that the uh, about the corridors, but they are working really badly. And people who are evacuated to uh, to Russia, they are they are really treated badly there. We work on uh, how to say in English. We receive the people on with the train who travels from, who are really escaping from from Russia via Belarus, uh, uh, Estonia, Łotwa, and they say that the filtration scams they are really like concentration scams, and it's really like a miracle that they 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 could uh, get away from there, but still they are alive. So so it's better than be killed or dead from the, the starving. Thank you. So I'm, I'm muting myself and I, I, that, that was my question. Okay, thank you a lot. You're more than welcome, Maya. Armageddon? Uh, hey, Maya. So for your question, it is a really dire right now in Azovstal, um, down in Mariupol. And the most pressing issue is to get all the civilians out um, through some kind of humanitarian corridors towards Ukraine. We know that the Russians are trying to funnel everybody from that place into their filtration camps and then move them somewhere to Siberia where they cannot speak, where they cannot be heard of. They just kind of vanish somewhere and who knows what's going to happen to those people. But that's the desired outcome for the Russians with all the civilians that had all the experience and all the memories and they can talk about what happened in Mariupol. They're just going to vanish. That That's what the Russians want. Um, our desired outcome is to continue to work with the Red Cross, other international institutions to get an escape route uh, into, the, into the free territories where, where they can um, be, well, continue the life and However, that is supposed to look like after those experiences they had in those two months of being bombed and shot at and had to hide in Mariupol. Um, for the troops, those drones that uh, we talked about uh, that may be able to supply material, and it's simply not going to be enough. There's not enough capacities. There's not enough skill of drone operators. It's going to be very close to the front lines that there's simply no way that it's going to be make a substantial difference and there. And let's face it, the soldiers down there have to make do with what they have. And they will. They will keep fighting. This is the last dance battle. And they will do that. They will fulfill their duty. But we need to keep in mind all the last dance battles we know of from history and in a devastating loss. So what language learner said before, it's a very, very slim and dire prospect. It kind of depends on how fast is it able to turn the battle in the Donbass and make it move south. And that is difficult. 
but that is the decisive moment of deciding if we can actually relieve those people in that place. And yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, there's really not a good news down there. Thank you, Armageddon. And again, if you would like to ask a question or bring up a topic for discussion, feel free to send a speaker request. We have plenty of free slots. I'm trying to bring language back up, but uh, I think we're... And then somehow I could hear both listeners and speakers at the same time. Is it just me or is speakers... Oh, here he is. Do speakers take longer to connect now? Yeah, it was a bit of a glitch there. Um, I will say this... Uh, you know, on the plus side, um, you're probably not going to have, there's been concerns about, oh, well, are they going to go down there and they're going to capture all the Ukrainians and they're going to torture them and take them to, you know, for May 9th. Uh, at this point, you could best describe the fighters in Azov style as I highly ideologically motivated um, to the same extent as uh, jihadists uh, in the Middle East who believe that uh, with their death, their cause will be advanced. Um, and when you get to that level of ideological motivation, it's very difficult to stop a person, especially when you look at the level of motivation on the fact of Russian soldiers, which is dismal. Most of them don't want to be there. So in a perfect world, and you know what I would hope to see at this case would be that uh, with the lack of Russian troops in the area, with the unsuccessful nature of their assaults that they've had so far, that they're going to end up... Uh, Basically saying, you know what, to hell with attacking this place because every time we go in, we get our bodies stacked up like firewood. And instead, we are simply going to uh, sit around and try and siege them out. And then it becomes more a question of resources. And uh, there are ways to ration things and make stuff last longer. But uh, And then in a perfect world from there, they'd be able to um, hold out long enough so when Ukraine forces inevitably do reach Mariupol, they can be relieved. But... Um, that's that's about as hopeful as I can allow myself to be at this point in time. Although the news about only two battalions being left, and that's reported by the Pentagon, that's that's actually very large. Like there was originally fourteen uh, battalion tactical groups in that city. The fact that they're down to nominally less than two thousand people—that's um, substantial. The Russians, I mean, that's not enough to both pacify the city and keep attacking this place every day and keep doing all the soldiering stuff they need to do. That, so, like, you know, going going with the whole three-to-one ratio thing, like, that's that's almost a one-to-one -one ratio with the amount of people in Azovstal. Granted, not, like, there's, there's probably a little less than the total number of people in their defenders, but still, right? Like, that's that's nowhere near the ratio you'd want to actually take a position like that. And then, you know add on top of the fact that it's going to be incredibly costly to fight in that kind of environment. Uh, peace for Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, we've had Colonel Spencer in here talk about it a number of times. Nobody's really prepared for underground warfare until you do it. There's a lot of factors. Um, you need to have very specialized trained units that practice extensively uh, to even hold a hope of assaulting an underground position. I mean, just think about it. There's a tunnel and a guy at the other side is ready to give his life today. And he's not, he realized that there was no other option for him, but to either kill you or die. And you have to walk towards him in a dark tunnel where you can't see and you can't hear because you fired a, sh a warning shot at a shadow and you blew out your eardrums. 
and you just want to go home and you don't want to be there in the first place, you're probably going to die. And the Russian troops that are being sent in there, I mean, they could throw, you know, 5,000 DPR guys in there, but they're just going to die. It's a, it's as close to walking in, you know, to certain death as I think any of us can imagine. And the Russians are, don't seem to have a plan beyond that. And I certainly hope they don't. I mean, there's things they could do with um, chemical munitions and smoke uh, grenades even, and, you know, try and smoke these people out. The good news for that is in at least two of the large bunkers there that uh, sort of the tier one and tier two bunkers, and then there's a bunch more of these tier three bunkers scattered around. They have uh, air filtration systems that are designed to last for, I believe, up to 30 days um, in the event of a nuclear strike. So things like that would be able to keep people alive for just that little bit of time longer in the event of some, you know, gross war crimes being perpetuated by Russian forces. Beyond that, it's it's difficult to tell. I hope this turns into a siege as opposed to continuous assault. And then it just becomes a matter of who can last longer. And the Russians really just want to sit around outside and uh, cool their jets. And then it'll be a very meager, very painful existence on the inside, but it will be an existence nonetheless. Sorry about that piece for Ukraine. Uh, did you want to continue? Oh, I'm sorry. No, 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 sorry. No, 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 no worries, no worries at all. <laughs> I, 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 I prefer I, I shut up immediately because I, I, it's important oh, your, 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 your feedback. I apologize. Please continue. I, I'm dreadfully sorry. No, no. No, 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 no! Please, please, please don't, please don't, uh, don't, don't apologize. Uh, it's so important the work you're doing here and and the information you're giving and, and the clarity. So uh, I thank you all the team, this wonderful team that is doing a tremendous job. Um, so important, and so thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I would just like to ask a couple of questions. Um, the first is, I suppose we still don't know anything about a, a new submarine uh, into the Russian fleet. Nothing confirmed so far, I suppose. Is this the um, is this the one that's supposedly capable of firing some, you know, nuclear missile underground flight uh, Britain that's been used in a lot of uh, Russian propaganda? Because that specific submarine, I don't think it's even been finished. Yet. Oh. I'm sorry. I I was trying to 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 make fun of this um, unconfirmed. Oh, oh the, uh, yes, the, the ship. Um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I apologize. It's a little late. I, the humor goes over. No, I understand. But, um, no problem. The, uh, yeah. So as of now, we don't have any evidence of it. Uh, what I thought was an SOS signal was some guy from Italy repeating SSO, SSO, SSO to try and get somebody to talk to him. So we haven't seen any confirmation of it. We haven't seen the radio signals we saw when the Moscow was sunk. And we haven't seen the mass movement of ships either. So at this point, I'm going to say it's probably unlikely, unfortunately. But I'd love to be proven wrong on that, too. Okay. Um, my second question will be in relation to Donetsk and Luhansk. And I'm sorry, I apologize for my pronunciation. Um, in relation to when the, the second portion and and those regions has um have any sort of uh, villages or areas that were cleared in relation to where it where it was closed down where it was occupied by by the uh, by the russian territory um i mean 
on 20 on on this stage of of the of this war of this invasion uh, on 24th of february there was already temporary occupied territories and i was just wondering is there already some sort of piercing into into sort of um getting back some of those territories that at 24th february were already occupied just wondering if we are start we already start eating into those areas or are we very close in there it's been described as the intention um they've said that a few times about how you know we want to restore ukraine to its full territorial integrity and that includes not only uh the donbass but crimea uh aside from maybe marinka which i think honestly was sort of along the line of control to begin with i haven't seen any real heavy advances of ukraine forced into those areas i mean right now they are still on the defensive with some counteroffensives that we haven't quite reached the point in this war where they can start uh, munching away at the russian territory that is rightfully theirs okay 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 i'm i was just trying to to get some some but ukrainian forces are holding their ground uh, as far as i can understand from the updates from last evening which by the way um uh the distinguished guests and and the panel last evening was absolutely wonderful it it was very enlightening for for those who didn't manage to hear last night it was at um 1 a.m. CET so 1 a.m. uh Brussels time go ahead and go to the recording it was really interesting i really appreciate it was very enlightened with the information that was provided so thank you so much for that uh in my sort of third point i don't want to be very long and take much of your time is that with the with all the all the information of the the the, the fighting spirit and inventiveness and and of of the ukrainian uh, army and and defensive forces um and and this idea with the drone having that explosive charge with that falls into that into that um into that jeep that open uh, with the open roof with this sort of ideas once do you see once the or even now starting to study different operations once you get all the information exchanging this and sort of developing projects with uh, with Ukraine and the allies um to to sort of develop um take advantage of those of that information both of the operations but also of all the different things that were able developing a, co- a cooperation um international cooperation with Ukraine and the partners to for those new projects that can learn from new tactics or develop new tactics for defending um not, not only Ukraine but any other country in conflict yeah. not on the presence on the future those um those uh new phoenix drones um that we heard quite a bit about uh, a couple of weeks ago actually are a really good example of that uh because they're i i believe they're based on the same sort of uh core design as the switchblade models but they're basically they've basically been updated with a specification sheet that the ukrainian sort of soldiers and military came up and said all right 
we like this we like these drones but here is what here's a list of things we'd like it to be able to do um and you know the the pentagon basically turned around and and gave them that in you know a month which is which is pretty impressive if you're sort of familiar with how long it can take to get something you know approved at the pentagon and turned into an actual product um so so that so that's sort of already happened and and you know happening in in ways that you know you wouldn't even normally expect um but yeah i think I, in general there's a every every military professional knows that like a lot of their work is going to involve studying ukraine for the next you know 10 15 years um and and learning from them basically um so yeah um Thank you so much. That's very encouraging news to 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 hear that there's there's open and wide berth for continuous cooperation and and working among the allies and and Ukraine for for a future. Okay, good. That's that's good news. Uh, I take that as as a positive. I I mean I think we 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 all want to uh, want to be aware of what's going on. Um, and we have to be aware of what's going on, no, ma no matter how dire, because it, it's important to see these things. But I also want to to look into the light and to look into the future, because um, we are we are here for the future, and and we stand with Ukraine, and um, we know we're going to get through this. It's it, there's still there's still for sure and. Some some dark months, but we're going to get through this, and and we stand in Ukraine no matter what for sure. Uh, for me, you have my total unconditional support, and I will continue to support you by Embraer, and I will encourage everyone who's hearing us to to go to Embraer, help out. It's a wonderful organization. Please support because this is the most just and the most noble cause there is. Thank you very much for your time. Take care. Speak later. Thanks, Peace. I appreciate it. Uh, Adrian? Hello. Good morning and good evening, depending on where you are in the world. So um, recently I've been seeing um, this talk of uh, cannon fodder and obviously like everyone following, uh, following uh, Russian casualties. Of course, I got optimistic as the war progressed. But I'm getting a bit worried uh, recently because I'm seeing more and more reports of... Um, uh, Russian authorities in the occupied areas forcing regular Ukrainian civilians to um, basically conscripting them, giving them poor gear and using them as cannon fodder. So whenever I hear the language of these guys are dying are cannon fodder, I'm starting to wonder how many actual Ukrainians who didn't really want to fight were just pushed into this. So my question is, how accurate and how extensive are these reports and how extensive do you think this is of this forced recruitment of Ukrainians? And second, uh, have any of them have gotten a chance to surrender to the Ukrainian forces and report more on it? That's my question. Yeah. So I think, so I think it's kind of important to divide up um, this question between 
the the sort of freshly occupied territories, right? Um, since since the 24th and and the Donbas area, uh, mostly because the Russian uh, state. Sorry, is... apologies. Uh, that's specifically what I meant, because I understand the difference between the Donbas and like the freshly occupied ones. I was thinking the most. Oh, sorry. Oh, right. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean. I'm I'm not sure to what extent they've actually been recruiting from, you know, the the newly captured territories. I mean, the the tragic part is that you know e even despite being stuck in the Donbass uh, for eight years under the mercy of Igor Strokov and and Putin and and every orc that that the FSB sends sends down there to manage uh, the prison camps. Sorry, I was I lost where I was going with that, but um, yeah, basically they've been more or less like emptying the Donbass, but in in terms of uh, recruits and that you know those guys are still Ukrainian, right? Um, and that's that's the sad part. The issue is I'm not sure that they have the actual capacity to recruit in those kinds of numbers. We we have been getting lots of reports of some of these fighters, you know, from the from the DNR, DNR and LNR, uh, basically, surrendering largely en masse, or you know, like maybe one guy out of out of the entire platoon like manages to surrender before before like everyone else is mowed down, right? Like, this is the kind of attrition rates we're talking for these units because the Russians literally don't care about them; they're literally just there to soak up bullets, and and like language says, like that's that's part of the strategy here they're not actually there to do anything useful apart from like get in the way of of a bullet that was meant for like someone that the russians think are slightly more capable in combat um i i i think like the problem here is that like in in the newly occupied territories uh, they don't have the same kind of incentives that they use uh to recruit in the donbass right or in and Mostly because uh, those people are like they call them twenty five thousanders, right? They're they're only there for the paycheck, which is basically nothing, uh, and and they're only there because that's the only job you can get in the DNR and LNR. Like, um, how how likely they are to actually find any success trying to press gang actual Ukraine uh, people actually in Ukraine proper who are sort of committed to fighting them uh, and can relatively easy get in relatively easily get in touch with people who are going to help them organize either to sort of get away or resist uh the russians is i i, I just don't see them doing it on mass right like not not in a way that would depopulate like those areas significantly like perhaps the donbass itself uh but yeah yeah it, it tried it in Izium, but it's a different mechanism where they essentially, because uh, they realize, like Imperius so well put, you can't take somebody in a town you just rolled into three weeks ago, killing a bunch of people. They're probably upset at you. And you go, congratulations, Conrad. Welcome to the Great Army. Here's a rifle. Now stand behind me. You might see the problems with that, right? So um, what we have seen, however, is that in the Donbass, there was a force mobilization campaign even before the war really started and it was paired with a forced depopulation campaign of uh, women and children 
the idea being that, oh, well, you know, you might not care about your life and we can give you a rifle and you might decide that you're willing to die for Ukraine because you have a major in your sight or whatever. But we know where your children are. We have your children. We have your wife and we'll do horrible things to them. So that that's been part of the motivating factor for these guys, um, because they're, they really are caught between a rock and a hard place. It's the Ukrainians are frankly, they don't have the capability to just accept surrenders from, a, you know, every single random dude. Uh, who comes charging around the uh, corner with a gun aimed at him? Then they're not going to be able to like. Well, well, no, you know, you look like a little Ukraine. These are we're talking fractions of a second that people are making these decisions. Um, the DNR, the LPR guys know they're being sent there to die. At this point, it's become pretty clear. Once you send enough guys and none of them come back, it becomes very obvious. And we've seen videos from them bopping around in the back of the truck, and like, hey, the first two guy groups didn't come back. We're probably not going to come back. This sucks you know, to hell with the Russians. But beyond that, uh, in the occupied areas, what we've seen them do in Izium is they said, oh, if you're a male between the age of whatever and whatever, you need to have a military ID in order to go through checkpoints or we'll harass the hell out of you. And how do you get a military ID? By signing up for the military, of the DPR LPR forces. From there, they've mostly been used in back-of-lines logistic stuff, which is still, frankly, a better position than given an old rifle and sent to the front to be mowed down. Um, but uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if these guys are going to be used as cannon fodder um, intentionally to soak up Ukraine bullets and that you're going to run into instances. And I wouldn't be surprised uh, if we hear about it when it does happen. Um, and the Russian media will make a big deal out of it where Ukraine forces firing on a suspected Russian position end up killing some of these forcibly conscripted Ukrainian citizens. It's a terrible, terrible war, and a lot of innocent people are going to die for no good reason. Um, but it's important to remember that the ones causing this misery is exclusively the Russian forces that are, you know, press-ganging people into service. Yeah, thanks. I mean, that was my thought and my um, issue with it, because um, I'm asked, I was asking because, I mean, how many casualties can Russia take until, until something happens? Uh, there is some inflection point where, you know, this can't stand. But uh, as far as I'm seeing, casualties are rising, but it's these guys. So, you know, I mean, I'm happy for Ukrainian progress, but uh, it seems, you know, that was my thought. But thank you for clarifying. Like, it makes sense. And obviously, Russia is uh, the one to blame for this, and this should be made very clear. I mean, uh, if, if it sort of helps you a little bit. Um, uh, so uh, the, the Russian battalion tactical groups, basically like the entire strategy they developed in the Donbass was to sort of use uh, like the worst infantry, like uh, just use, you know, like the Donbass guys basically, right, as, as meat shields. And then, you know, like they basically use, use their tank uh use their tanks to to push through like that's that's why the btgs are sort of like really skinny on on infantry as as we've seen they basically conscript the locals to to fill in the job right um so i think at this point the like they've already like burnt through those guys basically um as as terrible as it sounds um so i think at this point like the the casualties are are going to be shifting back towards, you know, uh, the Russians themselves. Yeah, thank you.
Thank you very much for your answers. Uh, I really appreciate your uh, insights on all of this. Anytime, Adrian. Herm? Yeah, for the um, false inscription of the man in Donbass, they're going to be used as meat shields heavily for, well, basically the Russian interest to keep their proper resources spared for what, what 